0: Welcome to Momentum Church. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Momentum Church. I am so glad that you're here. So, so good to have you. Um, If you're new around here, my name is Stephanie. I'm the Connections Pastor here at Momentum. And man, I am so, so glad that you guys are here today. It is wonderful to have you. We are um, jumping back into the Gospel of John, which we've been doing since um, the beginning of the year. We've kind of been weaving in and out Uh, of john and so if you want to go ahead and you can get out your bibles we're jumping into john chapter 8 today if you don't have your bible you can go uh, to my momentum church that website there's a link where it says today's notes you can click on that and it'll give you the verses for today so um yeah just follow along we're gonna go for a a little ride who's excited wonderful All right, so it's John chapter 8, and um, it's a story that a lot of us have probably heard before if you have been in church. It's um, Jesus and his encounter with a woman who was caught in adultery, so yay. Um, We're going to jump into this, and I have heard this, this account of Scripture before, but guys, I had such a cool time studying for today and saw things and learn things that I just have never seen and that I've never learned before so many layers to to all of this all of this amazing scripture that God has put together for us and so I hope that you learn something new today as well because like I said I had a good time so you should be able to as well so Um, One of the things, the first thing before we even jump into it, one of the neat, probably one of the coolest things that I I found out about this account in Scripture as I was um, doing a little research is that there are, are people who study the Bible who think that this account may not actually be original to the Gospel of John. Different manuscripts have this account in different places and attached to completely different um, New Testament works, so they believe that this account was real and an accurate description of a real event. But it doesn't make they say that it doesn't make sense in this exact place. So basically, this story is an interruption, if you will, between the end of John chapter seven and John chapter eight verse twelve and on. it's an interruption here, which I think is wildly fascinating because we know that there are no mistakes in the Bible. We know that there is no, no coincidence of how this book was put together for me and you to be able to learn about God and his will and his way. And so I, again, just thought it was so interesting that there must be something that he has for us to discover here, right? Right? There must be a reason for the layers that we're finding. And so you, can, you, can, you get to choose this analogy, whatever your favorite layered thing is, onions, parfaits, lasagna, baklava, mm. uh, whatever your favorite thing is, insert layered things, because there's something here, and I think it's going to be interesting for us to kind of dive into and discover one of the layers that I find extremely fascinating is the time frame in which this story is happening. So if we look in John chapter 8, they are winding down one of the feasts that they would have been celebrating in that time. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And that's ending in John chapter 7. Again, we're going to pick up verse 1 chapter 8. And so they've had this big party. This Feast of Tabernacles, again, Feast of Booths is when um, they would kind of set up camp outside. They had houses. They lived in their houses. But during this, um, during this celebration, during this feasting time, they would set up these booths outside of their houses, and they would live in them um, for seven days. And it is to be able to, um, it, it originally was designed for them to remember God's provision when God um, was with them through their wilderness journey. They, were, they wandered in the desert, and they slept in booths. And so that is what the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths um, was intend, originally intended for. Each family was supposed to construct this booth, and they'd live in it for the week. They're just small temporary shelters, and it's explained in Leviticus 23. We pick up in verse 42. Um, it says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days all native Israelites shall dwell in booze, that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booze when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So they would feast for seven days, and then on the eighth day, they partied hard, just to set up the, the scene for you. Um, that being said, it was not really how God intended it to be. He wasn't like, hey, go party hard. like, folks just got a little rowdy because you get a bunch of indulgent people together feasting and having a, this party, people tend to take it too far. I know no one here probably ever took a party a little too far, but that is just what had a history of happening. So it is not unfrequent, infrequent, whichever one of those is correct, that these sort of scandalous activities, adultery being the one we're talking about today, these were frequent among these feasts. Again, not what God intended, but it would be common to this time because again, it was not uncommon for folks to take a celebration a little too far. With that in mind, we're we're stepping into John chapter 8. This is what they've been experiencing for the last week. Now we're picking up in John chapter 8, the day after the party. We're starting off in verse 1. Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 2, it says, And early in the morning, he came again into the temple area. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began teaching them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. And after placing her in the center of the courtyard, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And I love that they, they start off by calling him teacher. They're like trying to appeal to his ego, right? They're like, oh, teacher, what would you say that we do? Like not knowing that they're talking to Christ and like... He's wise to your tricks, but we're not going to talk about that right now. We'll talk about that later. But what what they do is they bring him, a woman, with a very specific sin that also comes with a very specific consequence. The scripture says, it even says that she was in the very act, which I just always meant was like, in the act? Oh, the middle schoolers are gone. Okay, so they were like in the at, you know what I mean? Like that's just what I thought they were talking about there. But something else I learned, layers, was that that word translates literally into the phrase in the theft itself. Because adultery is a theft. And some people would say in that time, culturally speaking, it was because you were taking another person's property because, again, culturally, women belong to that man. And so in 2022, I'm just like, I'm my own property. I'll fight you myself (laughs) until I get tired, and then Tom can handle you. It's fine. But that's kind of the idea was that you are someone's property, and so it was theft by taking. It originally translates in ipso virtue, which again means in the very theft, which I think is fitting because isn't that what adultery is? It's a theft. It's a theft of trust. It's a theft of intimacy. And in this woman's case, it was a theft of the purity of her heart because isn't Satan a thief? And doesn't sin always try to steal from you? So this act, this theft, this adultery is what they're accusing her of, not, and not just because they're like out here trying to fight the good fight, right? Um, because the Levitical law says, you know, right, she's, she's wrong, but there's an adulteress, an adulterer, like there are two people here, and I only see one person standing in the middle of a courtyard, so if you're about the law, where's, where is her counterpart, They're not looking to try to uphold the law. They're looking to to put Jesus in a scenario where they can accuse him of doing something um, wrong. They're looking, um, and again, we'll we'll come back to the word accuser because it's very specific here. They're looking um, to find him in a trick, if you will, So we're going to jump into verse six, and it kind of talks about that a little bit. It says, now they were saying this to test him, so that they may have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, which is a great picture. They're talking to him. They're trying to, like, ask him these questions, irritating him, and he's just like, okay, these jokers, again, right? And he's just... And I don't know if there's any parents in the room that, like, maybe connected with that a little bit. It's like, these people will not stop asking me ridiculous questions. Why will they not leave me alone? I have a three-year-old, so most of my conversations are nonsensical. Like, that is just the life that I'm living right now. Like, these were actual questions, like, she brought to me (laughs) in my, like, this week. She calls me mom-mom. Mom-mom, yes, baby. The first thing she said was, um, why does the garbage truck hurt? Like, I don't even know what to do with those words. I appreciate, appreciate that it was kind of a sentence, but that doesn't make any sense. My mom, yes, baby. Why does la- Lady, is our dog, why does Lady have hair? Like, I don't know, like, because she's cold. Like, and my, f- my favorite, my mom, why does Daddy have nipples? <laughs> And I'm just like, all right, so here we're just going <sighs> to over. I don't know. I don't know what you want from me. This is the nonsense <laughs> that Jesus is dealing with with these folks. No. He's not, trying, he's not trying to put off their questions. He's not, you know, trying to try. Because he knows, right? He knows why, why they brought her. Her there. He knows what his answer is going to be. He knows. He knows. He knew that they were thinking that if they could get him to say, stone her, then he's, then he's going to be out of his jurisdiction because at, at that point in time, all capital punishments like going through the Roman government who's occupying there at the time. And so he's going to be in trouble over here with them. But then at the same time, if he like lets her off, that, you know, she's just, yeah, yeah, go well, now he's not in line with the Jewish law, so they're thinking, hey, we got him. Like, he can't win here. But if he is going, like, what is, what is he going to say? So where are they going to set him up? And, and as I'm reading this and I'm looking at it, I'm just like, oh, man, these jokers are a little tricky. Not tricky enough. But, man, they're getting to it. But, he, again, he knew what his answer was going to be to them, so let's keep going on. Um, in verse seven, he eventually turns around and starts talking to them. In verse seven, it says, when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down on the ground. And now when they had heard this, they began leaving one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the courtyard. So Jesus doesn't find fault with the law. He doesn't excuse her guilt. And honestly, he doesn't even, he doesn't even reprimand the scribes and the Pharisees that are there. Because that wasn't his aim. His aim was to bring all of them into the acknowledgement of their sin and eventually to repentance we see his grace extended to her and then also to her accusers and even while they're in the place where they're trying to get him to a place where he can they can accuse jesus still he's looking for a chance to, bring them, to make a way for them to go see their sins and figure their lives out. <laughs> Even then, he was looking for a way to open their eyes as well. One commentary that I came across as I was reading this really um, was so interesting to me. Now, obviously, no one knows for sure what Jesus was writing on the ground there. That's not something that we get to know this side of eternity. But the author of this particular article said something that um, I really loved. He noted the specific nature of the phrase, and with his finger, which is how he was writing on the ground. And the author referenced it back to the Old Testament, back to when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, sleeping in booths the time when God brought the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets, and watch how God brought it to Moses. It's in Exodus Exodus 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, written by the finger of God. And the author continues to kind of speak of this idea that as Jesus stooped stooped back down to the ground, and with his finger he writes, could have written in the same way that the father had in years past. And so as he writes down the Ten Commandments, he writes down that woman's sin, but he also writes down nine other commandments, which most likely some of these guys had one of those nine in there, right? So now they see her sin in line with theirs. And I thought, what a neat Picture of the accusers looking down and seeing seeing that, and then they turn and walk away. That realization moment where they say, "You know what? I'm not without sin." And can we just agree that that was not what they were how they were hoping to walk away, right? That was not how they envisioned this envisioned this encounter going. They were hoping that Jesus is going to execute justice for this law, right? That's what they're hoping, but they didn't find justice in this extreme, and they didn't find just this, you know, frivolous mercy in the extreme. They found it in balance because we always find that balance in the nature of Jesus. He always meets us in a balance as he speaks hope to us as we stand accused. And at times we want this extremes of God. It would be so convenient, but it's not. And that's exactly what we see here. Where Jesus says that simply having the power, such as the authority to execute this guilty sinner, just because I have the power to do it, doesn't mean that it's the best choice, the best thing to do. Jesus applies both the letter of the law and the intent of the law in this situation to be as God intended because that's what the original law was always supposed to do. It was always intended to bring us back into right standing with him. And that's what God wants for us today. That's the whole reason that Jesus came, right? That's the whole reason that he came to live a life that we couldn't live, to die a death that we couldn't die, to be able to... um, allow us to stand when the accuser of our heart, Satan, that's that guy, when we stand now before our judge, Jesus, and when our accuser tries to point at us, he doesn't see anything. He sees Jesus. We are accused no more, and that's and that's what Jesus came to do in the first place, to make a way for us to be able to be back in right relationship with him. And guys, we want to make righteousness so difficult, right? We want, to make, we want to make it complicated, but it's not. It's simply being in right standing with God. Let's pick up back in verse 10. One by one, all of her accusers have left, and we get to see Jesus now interact with her for the first time. So it's in verse 10. It says, And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Do not sin any longer. So try to imagine with me in this moment, you've been dragged to the middle of a courtyard by guys who you know are about to kill you. Like, you know, like it, as this conversation is happening around you, you know that you're going to die. You know the law. You know that this is what's about to happen to you. But then all of a sudden, you're free. And Jesus looks at you and says, where are they? Who accuses you? And he knows they're not there, right? Like he has eyes. Like he doesn't have to ask her that question. He knows that he just saved her. He knows that he saved her by the words that he just spoke to these guys. And he knows that he is gonna save her by the blood that he's getting ready to shed for her. He knows he doesn't have to interact with her in this moment, but he chooses to. An interaction that she will probably replay in her head over and over and over for the rest of her life in the middle of a courtyard with people around. And he says to her, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And I feel like there's two ways that this could have played out. I feel like Jesus could have gotten close and said, just he and her, hey, where are they? And she says, there's not here, Lord. And he says, I don't condemn you either. But then I feel like he also could have said, hey, where are they? As those guys who made their way out last are still with an earshot. You know, He like, oh, dude, anyone is still around here accusing you? I don't think so. You know what I mean? As they walk away. And I kind of hope that's how they did it, where he was just like, let them hear me say, where are your accusers? Say it loud so they hear you. Oh, they're not here anymore. But Jesus probably didn't do that because he's not as passive aggressive as I am. I'm just kidding. I'm not passive aggressive. I'm actively aggressive. But that's... Ask anyone who's followed me. But you know what I mean? It's like, but part of me feels like that's how the Lord would redeem her. He says, they're going to try to shame you publicly. I'll redeem you publicly. They're going to try to call you out. Let me bring you back to this because God always redeems us past what we deserve. Always past what we deserve. We see it commonly through scripture. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Ross talked about Joseph and what God did in his life. He went from a slave to being the highest in command um, in Egypt. We look at Sarah the barren mother who became the mother of many nations. We see David, who was a murderer, like also on that list of 10 no-nos. Like that one was pretty far up there. He became the man that people consider to be after God's own heart. You have Rahab, the prostitute, who becomes the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. He always redeems us past what we deserve. And maybe you're here today and you haven't had that defining moment where you recognize that he made a way for you. And maybe you haven't come into that right standing with God that allows him to redeem the hurt and the sin and the pain that you've experienced. But there is going to come a moment when you have to either accept or deny the truth of who God is in your life. We all do. We have this truth and now we have to decide what to do with it. And if you choose him, if that's the choice you make, I pray it is then you are going to have to wrestle with the grace that you don't deserve. And I would encourage you to go in and memorize John eight eleven, that he does not condemn you. There's only one person standing in the courtyard that had that option, and he didn't throw no stones. Go back and memorize that. Surround yourself with people who are going to encourage you as you go and sin no more. Because it's easy to get discouraged and forget, right? But how could she forget? How do you leave that encounter and forget? How do any of us leave this encounter of grace where we realize the way that God has made for us? How do we realize that and go back to anything else. Now we've come full circle back to the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's remember this woman and her accusers and this entire community of people are on day nine of that eight-day party. Like the morning after has arrived, the hangovers are in full force, the party that was supposed to remind them of God's goodness and provision Man, it has left this woman and many others who I assume are probably in her same situations. people who she represents, are left with pounding headaches, wondering, how did we get here? A question that I can only imagine that the Israelites asked themselves as they laid in their own booths, looking out through the same type of thatched roofs ask me again if I think it's a coincidence that this story landed in the middle of John chapter 8. He he left it here for us as a reminder of not just a physical journey of the Israelites, but a spiritual one that we're all on as well, remembering that God's grace, his provision is still sufficient. Now, only that journey doesn't look like Egypt to Canaan. The journey is from death to life. The journey from sin to repentance. The journey from disgrace to acceptance. The journey from the bed of an adulterer to the courtyard looking into the eyes of their Savior. What a journey! that he has prepared a way for us to walk. He says, I am the way, the truth in life. I love that song that we sang that said, and he's coming after us. There's no mountain, no valley. He always makes a way for us. I think he puts that in there Again, don't think this is a coincidence. He puts this in here for us to be able to remember that. That that way is always available to us. We just have to choose to accept that truth. But I also think that he put that in there for those of us who already believe. As a reminder of how we should help restore people back into righteousness back into that right standing with God. Guys, can we not drag people into proverbial courtyards and call it accountability? Now, there are gonna be times in life where people have to be held accountable. I've had true accountability, real accountability in my life. It is hard to receive. It is hard at times to give to people Thank you, Trisha, for being so consistent in my life when I didn't want to be accountable. It's, but it's necessary for us to be able to grow. But that's not what we see here, right? That's not what we have just watched happen. What does it say about the scribes and the Pharisees here? Because honestly, they should have stoned her. Deuteronomy 17, 7, the Torah dictated that the people who testified against somebody as a capital crime, they should have been the ones to throw the first stones. It says, okay, you accuse them, you're the one that's got to throw the first stone. This is not something that was groundbreaking for them to hear Jesus say, throw the first stone. That wasn't new, it's new to us because we're like, ooh. It, this was the common practice. However, the circumstances surrounding the sin of those accusers, the command that Jesus gave regarding that, now that changes everything, right? In a moment, again, Jesus takes the option of condemnation out of their hands and puts it back in the hands of the only one without sin. But Jesus chooses not to condemn us, doesn't he? In fact, earlier in John chapter three, it said God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because that's the rub with with the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Because they weren't wrong. Man, they weren't right. And I fear that often as Christians, man, we're We're not wrong. We're not right either. And I think it goes back to what Jesus was writing in the sand. What is it that Jesus is writing in the sand that he needs us to see? What is it that he's trying to teach us about our place in other people's redemption story? Because people need to be redeemed, right? Can you imagine like what does that look like when you see the parallel of yourself and someone else's life to be able to say, hey, I know that I know it's hard walking that way. There's another way. If you want to walk it, I'll walk with you. Because again, people need redemption. They need to be brought from death to life. They need to be held accountable. And to be compelled to righteousness. Again, back into that right standing with God. Not by being thrown into a circle of people holding rocks, but by being encouraged, by watching a living example of what it looks like to be in right standing with the Lord who rids us of all of our accusers. Which is hard sometimes, because we make it real easy to be accused. Y'all know that? but he does every time. And so we'll kind of wrap up with with this question. Can we live with a redemptive mindset? Can we put ourselves on the other side of the courtyard with Jesus? As we look at someone who is struggling to be in right standing with God, and recognize that our fight is not with that person that we're trying to hold accountable our fight is with the sin that so easily entangles them our fight is with their ultimate accuser satan which first peter says your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that is our fight friends Because one day we will all stand before Jesus. And much like the woman whose story we've talked about here today, and because of the relationship that we have with Jesus, our Savior, the one that has provided a way for redemption and not condemnation, he will call our name on that day. And he'll say, where are they? Where are they, Stephanie? Where are your accusers? And I love that um, he kind of tells us where he's going to be. Again, our accuser, Satan, who always works to make us feel unworthy, always works to make us feel condemned. And here's what, um, and the Bible tells us what's going to happen to him in the end. I love it. Plus, no good sermon doesn't close out with with something from Revelation, because that's the the funnest book. All right, (laughs) Revelation 12. It said, and then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's me and you, has been thrown down. And the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they, that's me and you again, overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Somebody say amen. That's how we overcome our accuser, because of the grace of God, the way he made that we could not make ourselves, the blood that he shed, and because the testimony of others who have experienced the same thing. So what can we take away from this story? What can we take away from the Feast of Tabernacles? I say it comes down to this, that God will always provide a way for us, for us to walk closer with him. Will we choose to walk in that way? And will we choose to walk it in a way that causes others to do the same? Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for the way that you make for us. Thank you even more for having the conversation with us that we don't deserve to look us in the eye with your compassion and your grace, for being the perfect balance of mercy and justice. Thank you for your blood that made a way for us. Can I pray for my friends here that may be struggling with that idea of grace, that haven't made that decision, whether or not they want to accept the truth of who you are. God, I pray that you would make yourself real in their lives today. Stir in them a desire to be in right standing with you. So we know that when you do, you prove yourself faithful to us. And that you'll continue to make a way. God, I pray for my others here, God, that I pray that you would help us to be those who stand with you as we look to fight against the accusers of our heart and for those that want to accuse those around us. God, help us to mirror you well in our ability to balance grace and truth. Help us um, to see the people in our lives that will hold us accountable and help us to do the same. Others, God, you're so good. Thank you for your word that nothing is by accidents and nothing is by chance. You always intended us to be here, you always intended us to be in right standing with you. And thank you that you made a way for us to be able to do that. We love you, and it's in your amazing name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining for this week's message. For more information, please check out www.momentumchurch.tv